Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. The times get tough, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today it is October 4th, 2010, and this is episode 523. It's a Monday, so you know what that means. You are a big part of the show on Monday because it's all based on things that you guys send me by email. Let me know about on Facebook, let me know about on Twitter, things like that. Everything I pick up from the audience with questions to articles they want me to comment on and other things. And I've got something interesting today. I am going to throw out props to a guy that a lot of people think I don't like. And I don't agree with everything that the guy comes to conclusions with. But I actually like him quite a bit, and that's Alex Jones. I got some props for him at the beginning of today's show. I got some pretty good questions. I got some tough ones. I got some easy ones. I've got a lot of stuff going on out there to talk about today. More current events than usual for a Monday show. More, hey, this is what's happening. This is what somebody sent me that, hey, Jack, how do I? But that's because that's the wave things have been going in and because it's been an interesting week. I'm also going today to, uh, to let you know what I was talking about Friday when I said that you won't believe what our Congress is doing to deal with China um, and their currency issues. So I'll let you know about that today. Many of you probably... No, by now, because after I talked about it, you're intelligent and you looked it up on Google, but uh, I'm going to give you my take on it, which might be a little bit different than everybody else's take on it. I think Rob Paul and I think a lot alike on this one. Shocking, I know. Uh, but before we get into all of that stuff and uh, talk about how we can build a more self-sufficient, self-reliant lifestyle, because that is the goal here always. We talk about the current event stuff once in a while, but it's more about solutions. But before we do that, let's take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today. It's Common Sense Prep. What will you find at Common Sense Prep? You'll find all the things you need for your prepping needs that are common sense oriented. From water storage to great publications by uh, people from Paladin Press Books. And remember, if you're part of the Member Support Brigade, you get 15% off of all those Paladin Press Books. They are some of the most interesting, most information-rich books I have ever seen. I've added quite a few of them to my own library. I'd recommend you consider doing the same. And again, if you're a Member's Brigade guy, you remember to get your 15% discount by using the special link in the Member's Brigade area. KnifeKits.com uh, is our second sponsor of the day today. Knife Kits I like because they let people even like me uh, start to learn how to make knives. That's why I like them because I don't have time to go out and start learning blacksmithing and get a forge and start pounding stuff and uh, you know get a jig and start cutting into handles. I, I don't have the... Uh, the space, the time constraints right now are just beyond that. And I have so many things I'm into, we can only be so much into anything. So Knife Kits lets a guy like me, or if you're the guy that wants to completely make things by hand that just needs raw materials, and everybody in between have one great source for great equipment to build the knife uh, that really is, is, when you carry it, it's part of you. Or to even, you know, run your own business making custom knives. And it's a great place for sources for the uh, professional bladesmith as well. So check out Knife Kits. Whether you want something that looks like one of them snap together models or you want something that's, uh, you just need a piece of wood for that handle that's really a beautiful piece of wood. Anything like that you'll be able to find at knifekits.com. Uh, next up today, uh, remember to check out the gear shop. We have lots of really great stuff at the gear shop. Had a person email me about the gear shop this weekend. Said, hey, look, I was on there and I saw people's names and their little pictures and stuff. And man, if I'm going to order from you and you're going to put that, in, we're not going to do that, okay? Um, the the uh, gear shop is run on a platform called BuddyPress, and that lets people that want to join the site as a member, so they can you know give feedback to uh, Assistant TW that run the gear shop and ask questions and kind of build an intelligent database of questions. If you don't want to do that, you can order anything you want, and you haven't joined the site, and you won't be displayed that way. So don't let that get in your way from ordering from the gear shop. Uh, I didn't realize people would think that. Uh, next up today. Uh, remember to check out the Member Support Brigade. Consider joining that. You support the show at 20 cents an episode. 
And uh, you get a bunch of stuff that's available only to member support brigade members, like free ebooks, like discounts to over 20 vendors, um, like 20 videos by me that are available nowhere else. Really good stuff, really good return of investment. And again, you're supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. Uh, with that, we can go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show and kind of doing things a little bit differently today. I want to take a second and I want to, uh, I do want to mention Alex Jones. And I'm asked, actually, after I mention him, I want to mention another broadcaster, uh, who Alex Jones doesn't like at all. And I think this guy probably doesn't really spend much time thinking about Alex Jones, but he probably doesn't like him, like him back. Uh, but Alex, I, I don't listen to a lot. And I, I want to explain why for people that don't understand this. I don't listen to a lot of people out there like Alex Jones, like anybody, you know, uh, with talk radio because I'm a talk show host. I do a very different show from a very different angle. Uh, but occasionally I do talk about politics. I do talk about current events. And the reason I don't listen to a lot of these other people is because it's very important for me from an integrity standpoint that I stay true to my own voice and I don't end up parroting other people. And whenever I use somebody else's material, I always try to give credit. It's so important to me. There's so much bad blood in the broadcasting industry among broadcasters because so-and-so stole my bit, so-and-so stole my material. This guy never gets credit. I never want to be that guy. I don't know that I'll ever be big enough for anybody out there that's really big to care. It doesn't really matter. Personally, I don't want to be that guy. I never want to be the person that uses, I don't care if it's a listener's email, without giving credit to the listener. Because it's just not right. And if you listen to somebody enough, and you're, you, and you're always talking about the same subject matter, you're going to take some of their voice and put it inside of you. So that's a big part of why I don't listen to Alex a lot. But this weekend was different because, actually it wasn't the weekend, it was Thursday. Thursday I'm driving up to the bug out location to do some work on the deer feeder. And um, I come across the station 880 AM in Arkansas. It comes out of Little Rock. And Alex is on there, so I'm listening to Alex. And Alex brings up... And I, the next day he brought up another article. There's two articles I'm going to give you that, that Alex brought up last week. Had them out on Twitter and Facebook for you guys that follow me there um, as well. The first one is on feds radiating Americans. And this sounds like a typical Alex Jones extremism, but it's not because it's true. What this article is about is federal authorities now have a technology that they can drive around these little vans with, and they see you with a rider truck or a U-Haul or a you know a, a commercial vehicle or whatever, and they go, oh, "Where was in that truck over there? Maybe they have drugs or something they're not supposed to in there." So they point this thing at the truck and they take a little picture and it X-rays the entire truck, including you. Yes, X-rays. You know how when you go get your teeth X-rayed at the dentist, they put that big, giant, heavy thing on you that's blue, looks like a vest? It's full of lead so that you're not over-radiated. Because when you get, when you get X-rayed, it's a limited exposure to radioactivity. Right? That's why the doctor doesn't stay in the room when he X-rays you. Now, if you get an X-ray this time and like six years later you get one and you know it's like that and it's done in a controlled environment only when necessary and only the parts of your body they actually need a picture of, It's a moderate to no risk at all. But having these massive you know, x-rays that are capable of this type of uh, intrusion going on everywhere all the time is putting people at health risk. It's also a violation of the Fourth Amendment, which says you know, you have a right against illegal search and seizure. Well, seizure not, you know, not being the issue here, search is. I have a right to drive down the road in my vehicle, and if I'm not doing anything that says that I'm violating the law, if my plate doesn't come back that I've been turned in for stealing a car, if I don't match a description, if I'm not traveling at a high rate of speed, I have a right to privacy. And I have a right to privacy more in my home, and it turns out they're using this shit to look into people's houses. So spot on with that. I'm not going to talk as much about the second one, but uh, when on the way back Friday evening, uh, Alex was on that same station. I checked him out again. And he was talking about the feds using what they call pre-crime to target disgruntled veterans with new technologies that basically monitor emails and phone calls for things that direct uh, toward resentment toward government and then put veterans on lists that say they can't buy guns because they have, you know, they're depressed or they have resentment issues or they have post-traumatic stress disorder. I want you to read both of these articles, even if you're not an Alex Jones fan. Here's the thing about a guy like Alex. While we won't agree about everything, We have the same concerns with liberty. So when something is going on and this guy finds it, he may come to a different conclusion from the sum total of results to me, but he's going to report it and he's going to report it accurately. For those of you that think I don't like him because of comments I've made as asides, let me tell you, I don't have to agree with somebody 100% of the time to like them. Hopefully a lot of you guys like me, I'm sure you don't agree with me 100% of the time. 
now, moving on to another guy I want to give props to. I also listened to Glenn Beck on uh, Thursday morning when I was on my way up there. And um, he was talking about going John Galt. And if, for those who have not read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, John Galt is, is one of the heroes of that. And he's a, a, a great mind, a great business person. And he just disappears. And the thing is that if we keep living this way, all the great business people will disappear. And Glenn was talking about it from a different standpoint. Uh, he was talking about it from opting out of the system, from not really being gone and not going away and not giving up, but not being in the fray, so to speak, and not letting it pull you down and living your life on your terms no matter what anybody else says. As you can imagine, I found that to be quite spot on and uh, a perfect example of why I don't listen to these guys very often because I'll start sounding like I'm parroting them because... That's what I say all the time, and I wanted to bring that up for another reason. If you listen to talk radio, you're always going to hear hosts saying, you know, putting other hosts down. Or, you know, one of the worst at this, and he's a great broadcaster, one of the worst guys I've ever heard for this is Michael Savage. Oh, he did that. He took that. The backbenchers picked up my story, all this crap. Listen, if we're talking about the same stuff and we feel the same way about it, we're going to say the same things. Just want to temper that for those that are into the talk radio sphere for a little bit today. All right, but definitely check out those two articles that are on Alex Jones' website, Prison Planet. We'll have links in the show notes. The one that I didn't talk about as much about veterans is very disconcerting what they're doing. Basically, it seems like Homeland Security has been built with the, the terminology and the message to us, let us spend all this money to protect you from the enemy overseas, and the entire apparatus has been built so that it can take liberty away from the American people. Shocking, I know, since it all started under George Bush. All right? Um, another reason to be a political atheist. Let's go on and take uh, one of your actual emails now that I've eaten up 10 minutes of the show. So let's go ahead and, and drop the cliffhanger about what China's doing, uh, or what our government's doing about China. As I've reported to you guys in the past, the Chinese have a habit of... Um, playing games with their currency, they basically have decided how weak they want the yuan to be against the dollar. The yuan is their currency. And then they say, okay, so if we want, and I don't even know what the exchange rate is. It doesn't really matter. It's just very, very weak. So if we want, uh, let's say, I think it's like six or seven yuan to the dollar, somewhere around there. So if we want one dollar to be worth six uh, Chinese yuan, uh, if the dollar goes up, then we strengthen the yuan just a little bit. And if the dollar goes down, we weaken it a little bit. We don't let it weaken or strengthen based on the entire world currency market if we're the Chinese government. Since it's a fiat currency and we decide we can run it our own way and it's not part of Forex, we can just change it. So they just buy by, or, by order. Wherever the dollar goes, the, the yuan just, and we keep the delta exact. What does that do? Well, it sets up a situation where it's very easy for the Chinese to, to export a lot of stuff and sell it to the United States, and it's very difficult for the United States to sell much back to China. All right, So it creates a trade imbalance. And I've also said that I think it might be part of their endgame, that eventually they will let the, the yuan float. And as it strengthens, they'll use it to start buying stuff inside the United States and in the first world. Right now they're using a weak currency selling to the first world to buy up resources in the third world, in South America and Africa. And they're buying up all types of resources. They're buying up underlying commodities with the amount of property that the government owns. Because it's not like here. You know, China actually owns the, the, the mines. It owns the farms. The nation owns it. It's communist. So as China does this, its underlying value because of the commodities it's acquiring clearly is going up. And once they allow it to float, they'll play endgame. And they'll come out and they'll start basically buying up parts of America. Kind of like the Japanese did. In the 80s, boot on steroids. And some people think I'm right, and some people think I'm nuts. Apparently the U.S. Congress has taken uh, a look at this and decided that China is creating an artificial trade delta. Gee, it only took these guys freaking what? Uh, like 30 years since Nixon reopened relations with China to figure this out? You know, these, these are geniuses running our country. So what they want to do is put a tariff on Chinese imports of something like 44%. And I'll put a link to this article. There's a pretty interesting video you can check out. But let's just not go deep into the details. And let's analyze this from a Jack perspective, from a survival podcast perspective. What does this mean for us? It means the cost of everything going up. That's all it means. Because right now we are addicted to cheap Chinese crap. 
And the government's doing everything it can to get us spending our money on cheap Chinese crap again. And at the same time, they want to increase the price of cheap Chinese crap. Um, I think Ron Paul put out a statement that's pretty pretty similar to what I'm saying. I haven't read it in full, but I've skimmed it, and I, I think we're, we're pretty close in agreement on this. But here's here's the deal, folks. A lot of things that sound good in principle don't really work out, especially if you don't do other things along with them. What happens if we decide that we are going to do this? This has to go to the House pass, it has to go to the Senate, and then Obama has to sign it. Okay, well, the first thing that happens is, uh, once it goes into effect, everything that you see in Walmart says made in China goes up in cost by about 40%. Okay, this further stifles the U.S. economy. It also pisses off the Chinese. And the Chinese turn around and say, you know what, maybe we don't need to buy as much of your crappy American debt. Maybe we need to divest ourselves further. Maybe we need to start loaning you guys a little less money. Now, the hope is that when we do this, that American goods will become more competitive internally, and that will give the American working man a chance back at some manufacturing jobs, which ain't going to happen. It ain't going to have that effect, folks, because the capacity to manufacture this stuff doesn't exist here anymore. Unless we rebuild that capacity, unless we rebuild the economic climate in America that makes it conducive to business, all we'll do is put China on an equal footing with other people we're importing from and piss them off, and raise our prices. And maybe we push them towards endgame faster. I don't know. I just think you should take a look at it. You should know that this is going on. What does it tell us? It tells us a couple things. One, our government's broke. Think about this. Who gets the money? Right? We pay for it. Make no mistake. Let's say the Chinese are importing a freaking bicycle. All right? And that bicycle is manufactured for a cost of $50, shipped to the United States, and put on a shelf for a cost of $10. Uh, it's, with stocking and everything, it goes up to $70, and it's sold at the Toys R Us store for a kid to get on Christmas Day for $100, and the store makes $30. And I'm not saying those numbers are accurate, let's just use them as an example. So now what I do is I come in and I put a 40% tariff on the $50 import. All right, so that would be $20. So now the bike has to be sold for about $120 for the merchant to make the same profit. Do you think anybody in that chain is going to give up their money? No. So everybody in the distribution chain is going to add the money on to make up the difference. Who gets the $20? Our United States government does. Who pays the tariff? The Chinese do. No, they don't. You do. Because you pay it in the final purchase price. It's another way for the government to tax us. Is what it really comes down to. If you want businesses to come back to America, create a pro-business environment. Don't punish people who, even though they're communists, have got this capitalist thing figured out better than us. And don't take the American people who you've made dependent on this material now have to pay 20% more at a time when they're broke. It's not the way to fix the problem But it does show that maybe the Congress has figured it out, because I think maybe they figured out the long-term end game, and maybe they're trying to do something about it. Uh, those who think this is a malicious move by the Congress, remember my, my you know statement for everything going on with this stuff. Never attribute that to malice, which can be explained through incompetence. Let's go ahead and take another uh, email. Totally shifting gears here. A uh, gentleman by the name of Sawyer emails and says, Hey, Jack, I'm looking to purchase a chest freezer. Here's the problem. I don't have a garage, shed, or basement to put it in. It has a covered area attached to the back. I have a covered area attached to the back of my house, but it's not climate controlled and open on three sides. I live in the Seattle area. I have heard that freezer motors don't like the heat of summer or the cold of winter. A friend also said that it would probably sweat. Is there a model that would put up with the outdoors? What do you think? Thanks, Sawyer. I don't know if there's a freezer model that's really built for the outdoors, but let me put it to you this way. In my garage, which is closed in on four sides, is a chest freezer. In that chest freezer is a lot of deer meat and some other really good stuff. Uh, in the bottom of it is about six gallons of solid frozen water to help out with this very issue. And I'll bet you that in my Texas summers that my closed-in garage is a hell of a lot hotter than your covered open area on the backside of your house in Seattle. So I would tell you that a standard chest freezer will probably work just fine for you, with one exception. You're going to look at a sticker, and it's going to say the annual cost to run this based on current electrical rates is whatever that number is, 
Multiply that number by about 1.3 to 1.5. It's going to have to work harder, and it's going to reduce its life expectancy. That doesn't mean it don't work. It doesn't mean it won't do well for you. But one other thing I would definitely advise you to do is make sure you get yourself a small generator capable of running that chest freezer because you do have a greater potential for failure of the device than if it were in a nice climate-controlled area. Um, but I don't think you're going to have problems if we, you know, if we look at Seattle. I mean, what's the average temperature in the summertime in Seattle, Washington? I think your average highs are like in the mid 70s. Um, I have mid 70s in my garage. Very rarely, it's usually 80s in my garage and higher. In the middle of the summer, it's 90 some odd degrees in there, and that freezer is just trucked on like a champion. It's been in there for five years. I don't think you're going to have a lot of problems. It may sweat some, but I doubt it. Chest freezers run a little bit differently than refrigerators. Um, but I would definitely store some ice in there. That's good practice anyway. And I would have a plan for what do I do if it fails. I think that would be a very, very good idea to have a plan for what do I do if it fails. Um, but that's good advice for a chest freezer anyway. I'll just go ahead with it. Let's go ahead and uh, take another one. So... I get another email from somebody, and I think, do I really need to fit this into the show or not? It comes from Stephanie, and then I think, yeah, I do. The email is composed of a single phrase with a little statement at the end of it, and it says, genetically modify trees to use more carbon, dot, 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 space, 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 sigh, period. Stephanie, I feel the same way. You've conveyed this beautifully with this simple email. And when I look up the article, let me just read it to you because it's kind of short, and I'll put a link so you can check it out for yourself. And then let's chat about you know why this is bullshit and what's really going on here. Genetically altered trees, plants could help counter global warming, and this has been posted on Medical Daily or Medic Daily Medical. MedicalDaily.com. Uh, forests of genetically altered trees and other plants can sequester billions of tons of carbon from the atmosphere each year. So help and and so help ameliorate. Word I don't know there. I guess that means to mitigate global warming, according to estimates published by the October issue of Bioscience. This study by researchers at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and Oak Ridge National Laboratory outlines a variety of strategies for augmenting the process that plants use to sequester carbon dioxide from the air and convert it into long-lived forms of carbon, first in vegetation and ultimately in soil. Besides increasing the efficiency of plants' absorption of light, researchers might also be able to genetically alter plants so they can send more carbon into their roots, where some may be converted into soil carbon and remain out of circulation for centuries. Other possibilities including altering plants so that they can better withstand stresses of growing on marginal land and so that they can yield improved bioenergy and food crops. Such innovations might, in combination, boost sustainability and the amount of carbon that vegetation naturally exerts extracts from the air, according to authors' estimates. The researchers stress that the use of genetically engineered plants for carbon sequestration is only part of many policy initiatives and technical tools that might boost carbon sequestration already occurring in natural vegetation and crops. The article by Chris, Chris Turr, Chris, Chris Turr, that's his name, Christer Jansen, Stan D. Wulschlel, I can't do his last name, Udaya Kalori, and Gerald A. Tuscan, okay, one I can get his name right, is the first in a special select section of October Bioscience that includes several perspectives on the prospects of enhancing biological carbon sequestration. Other articles, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so here's the deal. Now they're going to genetically modify plants that we don't eat. It's just out there in nature, oak trees and stuff like that, so that they'll take up more carbon to help with global warming. Do you know what would take up more carbon if we really needed to take up more carbon? More trees. Less vacant land. Less land destroyed. Permaculture. Trees in people's backyards. When we build a new neighborhood, a new subdivision, instead of killing every tree, leaving them there because they increase the property value, even though it's a little harder to build if you don't just demolish the whole damn place. I don't know. What else? Not creating desert environments where there used to be woodlands. Not destroying our planet. I mean, all of these things would take a more carbon if that's what we're really concerned about. Do you know what this is? This is an attempt... This is an attempt by the companies doing this genetic modification and our government is supporting them in it 
to win over the environmentalist. Look what GMOs can do. They're starting this public relations message toward the environmentalist. If we use GMOs, we get higher yields, so we need less cropland, so we do less damage. If we use GMOs to alter the trees, they'll pull in more, and they'll save us all from global warming. We'll need more policy initiatives and technical tools. That's, that's code words for taxation, right? <laughs> But it'll all be better. I keep telling you guys the problem with this GMO stuff. It won't stop. It won't stop until it destroys everything. These people are intent on genetically modifying everything. They want to genetically modify pigs so that their noses glow in the freaking dark. Seriously. They want to genetically modify salmon that you're going to eat. Now they want to go out into our general biosphere and genetically modify wild plants just so they'll suck up more carbon dioxide when even if we could get a 1% gain, which I think is bullshit, I don't even think they're going to get that, But if we could get a 1% gain, we could do the same thing by putting back 1% of our forests, or 2% of our forests, or 3% of our forests. If we would stop doing agricultural processes and completely rape and deplete the land of everything, including carbon, maybe this wouldn't be such a big deal. I think global warming caused by carbon is bullshit in the first place. You need to check into how much global warming is caused by methane that comes out the ass of a cow. If you, you need to check into how much global warming is caused by water vapor. And if you really want to understand how much bullshit this is, you need to check into something. For those that are believers and getting mad at me right now, carbon dioxide has a saturation limit. This is a chemical process. I can't change it. Science can't change it. No one can change it. Where it only actually reflects certain wavelengths of light. And once those wavelengths of light are being reflected in an atmosphere that contains CO2, it can't really do a whole lot more once that saturation limit has been reached, and it has been reached in our atmosphere. Which means all these other wavelengths of UV light are not affected by CO2. CO2 does contribute to global warming, and we're thankful for it because we all freeze our asses to death without its limited contribution. But it's made its contribution. If we put 50% more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We wouldn't even have a tenth of a percent increase on its contribution toward global warming. That's scientific fact. This is a tool being used to convince the people in general that we need things like genetically modified organisms. Great. And I've got more on that in a bit. Let's take something else. Um, guy emails me and says, Jack, I tried making, this is from a guy named Nick. Nick says, I tried making biltong and it went moldy on me. I was wondering if it was too humid And if adding a fan would fix the problem. It was in the basement where it is cool and dark, but not too cold to live, uh, as that is where I sleep. I live in the Pacific Northwest, by the way, Portland, Oregon. Nick, you can't make biltong where it's moist. Period. So anybody that's tried to make biltong and it didn't come out right, if you made it in a humid environment, it ain't going to work. Biltong, for those that don't know, it looks, people compare it to jerky, and that's the easiest way that I can make you understand it, but it's like, I don't know, comparing biltong to beef jerky is like comparing uh, a sirloin steak to a ribeye steak. They're just two different things, right? This, they're, they're not, they both from a cow, they're both beef, they have a very similar caloric intake, but if you ate the two of them, you would know the difference. So biltong is like a thick version of jerky. I hate saying that, but it's the easiest way to make you understand it. It's traditionally made in South Africa, and it's only made during certain months out of the year. That's the time they call the dry season. And it's shade-dried versus sun-dried and thinly sliced like jerky. It almost mummifies the meat. The basic ingredients for it are salt, pepper, coriander, and a little bit of vinegar. I always use apple cider vinegar. Uh, once the meat's allowed to soak in that concoction, it's hung up and allowed to dry. I've said over and over, you can make it in your house. You need to hang it up in an air-conditioned area with low humidity. If you do that, you don't need a fan. You don't need a biltong box. You don't need anything. You just hang it up. And within about a week to two weeks, you got biltong. If you hang it up in a damp basement, it will go moldy on you because it's not dry enough. Using a fan in the basement, would it help? It might, but it's probably still not going to work. You need to find a dry environment for it. Now, somebody, I'm going to do this on YouTube. I just bought a bunch of meat. Tom Thumb had this huge sell on beef roast uh, for like a buck thirteen or something like that a pound. So I bought a bunch of it. This week I'm going to cut it up and I'm going to do some YouTube videos making biltong, something totally different. I'm going to do it in an Excalibur dehydrator. Why? Because the listener tried it that had the same problem, but they just didn't have anywhere in such a humid environment. They didn't have anywhere where it was really cool, and it was a cool environment like you know Pacific Northwest, where they don't really rely on air conditioning that much, so everything was too humid. So he put it in the, the, the um, 
the Excalibur dehydrator, very thickly sliced, so like every other tray removed so it would fit, ran it on the lowest setting, and a neighbor or friend or whatever that he has from South Africa said, best biltong he's ever eaten. So I'm open-minded. If a guy from South Africa says it's good, I'm going to try it, because uh, they, you know, that's like asking a German about beer. So biltong something everybody should teach themselves to do, but it ain't going to happen in humidity. You're going to have to find a dry environment. It doesn't have to be really warm. It doesn't have to be really cool. It cannot be exposed to direct sunlight, okay? And it cannot be humid. It has to be very, very dry. Uh, one person I talked to, uh, Keith Cutbert from over in South Africa, is now building biltong boxes out of old computer uh, uh, towers. So you basically gut everything out except the fan, and you open it up and put little hooks in there so you can hang your biltong inside there, and you create a, you know, a, a very dry environment inside there because of a fan running through it. Kind of a very low-temperature dehydrator. And that's maybe what you need in these more humid environments. All I can tell you is, no matter what time of year it is, if I hang it up in my office, and the dogs walk back and forth looking at the string hanging from up near the roof... With the air conditioning on, I've never needed a fan. I've never needed anything. It's always worked perfectly. But you got to keep biltong in dry environments, guys. That's why they only make it three months out of the year in South Africa if they do it outside. Um, next one, a guy asked me. This is an important question right now because a lot of people are in this situation. Jack, do you have any advice for people with houses they really don't want and would like to sell, but because of the market and their financial standing, it's very hard to do so? Um That's the way to ask a question, direct and to the point. Then he gives me his background information, which we'll use this time. Uh, we have, in the past six months, started our journey toward debt freedom and preparedness. We're living week-to-week money-wise with a house that my wife and I hate in an area we hate. We have been here for five years. Our home has a townhouse connection connected to 59 others in a homeowners association. Oh, dude, I'm sorry. All of the houses are basically identical, except whatever upgrades people have done inside. Two houses down from mine were recently taken off the market after it failed to sell. The entire inside of that house was redone and updated. The final asking price was a couple thousand less than we owe on our mortgage, and they couldn't sell it. It seems to me that we are stuck with our mistake until other debt is paid off about five years from now, at which point we'll be in a better financial situation and we'll have more options. Any advice? First of all, sorry you're in that situation. I really am. Most of the things I would tell you to do have been tried by other people in your neighborhood and didn't work. I would say, you know, new countertops, new cabinets, new carpet, new paint, new flooring, um, and make the outside look as good as possible. Basically, you're telling me that was done and, and even offering to sell it under what you owe, you, they couldn't get rid of it. Um, there's a couple things you can do. One, you can go to your bank and you can tell your bank that you have your mortgage with that you're coming on to hard times and right now you're paying your mortgage as best you can. Um, but there's just no way you're going to be able to keep making your payments. They'll probably believe you because so many people have been in that situation. And you can ask them for the right to short sell the property. You can take uh, the appraisals of the two houses that you just saw fail to sell to them. You can say, look, these houses are in better condition than, than what we've done. And uh, the market just would not go. And no one was buying it. And this house just isn't worth this anymore. And uh, we would like the opportunity to short sell this property before... Um, we default on it. And they may play ball with you and they may not, but it's something you can try. The other thing you can do is just put it up for sale. Just put it up, just list it. You know, even if you do it by owner, and I don't even mean through by owner, just put it out of science, it's for sale by owner with a phone number. Uh, you have a lot more flexibility than anybody using a real estate agent because you don't have to commission to pay. So there's, you know, three to six percent right there. Um, it never hurts to have a home for sale. It never hurts anything, especially if you're not listing it Officially, it's just a sign in the yard. So somebody might buy it. You never know. The problem is if the properties aren't selling for that now, nobody's going to get a mortgage on it. And this is a case you need to make to your bank. Um, the only other option is that you stay put and you keep making your payments and you wait on recovery and you're paying down your mortgage balance and eventually you can get out from under a bad decision. There is always the walk away option. If it's that bad and you want to walk away and you're willing to crater your credit to do it, you can do it. I don't advise that. If you're going to do it, though, do it with honor. Go to the bank and say, look, if you guys don't play ball in some way, shape, or form, we're going to walk. We're going to mail you the keys. 
We're going to take all our shit, and we're going to walk. By the time you do foreclosure proceedings to officially take the property back, we'll be four months out and living somewhere else. We're, we're just not going to do this anymore. Is there anything we can do as far as a short seller to play ball? You know, And they might say no. And, you, and they'll say, well, it'll destroy your credit. Well, we're perfectly aware of that. That's what you tell them. We're per you can bluff that, too. That you can't, they can't do anything if you go down there and basically threaten to walk and then don't walk. They can't say, you said you were walking, now you have to, no, no. As long as you make your payment, they have to leave you alone. So you can keep pushing the bank. So I would start out with, we'd like permission to short sell, we see financial hard times coming, and if they don't play ball, I would wait that out a while, I would go back and make sure you see the exact same person, and I would say, hard times are here, we are 30 days away from walking this property. And we don't want to. And we want to do this in the right way. But we can't afford it anymore. And we're not going to live in it and not pay you for three months. We're going to just walk. Are you sure you don't want to play ball? Are you sure there's not some solution we can come to on some level of a short sale? The problem is you can't do like a self-imposed short sale. Let's say the property's worth $150 in reality and you owe $175. Since you're living week to week on your money, you can't basically sell it for $150 and pay the $25 out of pocket just to get free. You know, and call it like a freedom tax. You don't have the money. So these are the only options that I see for you. Um, and then there's always the dishonorable option. And uh, I think sometimes people get put into this position by a bank that won't work with them. And that's where, you know, maybe you do stay there for two months and save up your money and go somewhere else. Um, I really don't like that. I do find that to be very dishonorable. If you can pay and you stay, you should pay. If you're not going to pay, leave. If you're just to the point where you're not going to pay any more, leave. I, I really don't advise that right now. I think that we are on the cusp of false recovery. I don't care what anybody says. And I keep talking to more and more people telling me I'm wrong, and I keep seeing more and more reasons that I'm right. I think there is going to be a ton of money dumped into this economy in the next two years. Uh, we call that the other half of the stimulus program. And I call it Obama's re-election fund. And I think that that much money being dumped into an economy is going to have to do some spurring uh, of the economy. And people are going to start relinquishing all this money that they're saving. We'll talk about that in a bit. I think you're going to get an opportunity to get out. Until then, make every cheap improvement on the property you can. Put every bit of sweat equity into the property that you can. Do everything you can to make it stand out. If you have a little yard in the backyard, make it beautiful and easy to maintain. Put together a book. Start making a book now of every single good thing about your neighborhood. I know you don't like it, but you pretend you do. Put together a book where the closest place for kids to go to Little League is, where the closest stores are. Everything in your, with Google Maps printed out, a beautiful three-ring binder that you leave on a table. And when somebody walks in to look at your house, they're able to look through that binder and see where everything is they could possibly imagine that they want. Sell that with your house. That's the best I can do for you. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Um, Eric, who sends me so much great stuff, sends me this uh, link. And it just says, Jack, another article pointing out that the Great Recession may not be over after all. But Jack, the green shoots, JK, which means just kidding. Uh, Eric, yeah, just kidding, the green shoots. Uh, you're dead on. There, there, there are no green shoots. But maybe there are. Let's take a look at this because it's in contradiction to what I just told you about a recovery. This article is rather long, but I'm going to read a lot to you of it because it's a very important one. Uh, this is on the Associated Press. It's actually featured on Yahoo News. Economy loses speed in spring, more weakness ahead. Um, Washington, the nation's economic growth trailed off sharply in the spring and possibly isn't faring any better now. Think about this. They're just now giving us, this is a September 30th article, and they're just figuring out what spring was about. Gross domestic product, the broadest measure of the economy's health, expanded by a feeble 1.7% uh, annual rate in April through June quarter. Uh, the Commerce Department reported on Thursday. So we produced 1.7% more this quarter than we did the same quarter last quarter, but that's not good enough. Remember what Chris Martinson said when I had him on, folks, about the economy requiring growth at all costs? Here's a perfect example. If you have a company right now that was profitable last year, 
and you grew, but you only grew by 1.7% in the first quarter this year during these hard economic times, you're probably pretty freaking happy. But for a nation as a whole, be, built under fiat currency, it's a failure. That's a notch higher than the 1.6% growth rate the government estimated. So they estimated 1.6 and we got 1.7. The slight change was mostly due to a little more spending by consumers than first estimated. Still, that's not enough to have a major impact on the economy. The second quarter estimate is a sharp slowdown from a 3.7% growth rate logged in the first quarter. Most economists expect growth to be similarly weak in the July-September quarter, with estimates ranging between 1.5% and 2%. The government's first report on the third quarter GDP will be released on October 29. Um, unemployment now at 9.6%, the lie number is 9.6%, by the way, is expected to stay high or even rise in the coming months. Americans aren't spending enough to give companies the kind of confidence in the economy that leads to rapid hiring. Let me read that one again. Americans aren't spending enough. Americans aren't spending enough to give companies the kind of confidence in the economy that leads to rapid hiring. Consumers did boost their spending in the second quarter at 2.2% pace. It was a tad better than the government's previous estimate of 2.0. So, again, the government's wrong. Shocking. But it is still considered lackluster from the point of this recovery by historical standards. Economists think consumers will spend a slightly slower pace through the rest of this year. Consumer spending, because it accounts for roughly 70% of all economic activity. <laughs> In the second quarter, Americans saved 5.9% of their disposable income, the most in a year. Before the recession, they saved was just 2.1%. Listen, please listen to this. The fact that the average American is saving 6%, roughly, of their disposable, not their income. So if you make 100000 a year, that's not saving 6%. Okay? You make 100000 a year, and after you pay all your bills, you have 50000 left, and you save $3,000 is a problem. I'm not saying it. The government's saying it. Read it in the article. If a guy that makes $100,000 a year and pays all his bills at $50,000 a year pays his taxes at another twenty, that leaves him thirty, right? Puts ten in his 401k because that's not the kind of savings they're talking about. Left with twenty, And out of that $20,000, what is 6% of $20,000? 1200 bucks? That's a problem. He used to save 2%. What was that? 2% of uh, 20,000 is uh, 400 bucks. He used to save 400 bucks. Now they're saving 1200 bucks. That's a problem. This is your government. You're the reason the economy is not recovering. You're not spending enough money. The economy is a top issue heading into the congressional midterm elections. Voter backlash could cause the Democrats to lose control of Congress. GDP measures the value of all goods and services. I'll, I'll let you read the rest. Now let me read this to you. The familiar piece, uh, skipping down. The Federal Reserve is weighing new action to bolster the economy. One likely step is to buy more government debt. Doing so would be aimed at lowering rates on mortgages, corporate loans, and other debt. The Fed's goal, get Americans to boost their spending, which would strengthen the economy. More debt will equal more spending. They're not completely wrong. Eventually it will. It will create inflation. Inflation is necessary for the economy to recover. Let me show you what I mean by that. Let me put it in perspective for you. This is the, this is the frightening one. Um, this is the part that you really need to understand. The economy's growth has to be much stronger than what the U.S. has been logging to lower unemployment. Under a one rule of thumb, the economy would have to expand by 5% for an entire year to drive the jobless rate down by one percentage point. That means our economy has to grow for 5% steady for a year to push the economy or the, the unemployment rate from 9.6 to 8.6. That's the situation that we're in right now. And the government solution is just throw more money at it. If we just keep throwing money in... I also... Uh, I want to bring out something else I heard uh, on uh, Financial Sense uh, News Hour with uh, Jim Poplava. Somebody asked Jim why the M3 is contracted. There's actually less money today than there was, you know, four years ago. Even though they've been printing all this money, and Jim had all these, you know, technical explanations for it. I'll give you the simple one: the the monetary base contracted due to default. That's it. 
That's what happened. If you understand how money is created, and I don't know why Jim didn't see this because he certainly understands this, but if you understand how money is created, when you go to the bank and borrow money to buy a house, new money is created. When money is lent by a bank, new money is created. They don't lend you money they have. They use money they have to create new money. And when all of these defaults occurred, all of that money that was created went away. And when the Fed pumped in $3 trillion, $4 trillion total dollars of new money into all these different places and surged that money in there, and we ended up with less than we started with, what does that tell you? More money disintegrated than the Fed was able to replace. And now that we've bolstered it up, now we can go forward and we can create even more money. Isn't that great? Isn't that freaking wonderful? That's what your government's plan is. Boost it and do more. The Federal Reserve buying its own debt actually amounts to printing money. We say they're printing money when they get, you know, a loan, when they sell bonds to China or they sell bonds to Japan or they sell bonds to Europe. And they are, but not completely. When they buy their own debt, they're using fake money to buy more fake money to create a loan with fake money to put more money on the street. If that's not printing, and, and they don't even print it anymore. I just talked to a guy running for Congress, and he said, oh, they're not printing money. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? You're right. They're not printing money because they don't even run it on a printing press anymore. They're creating money by typing it into a computer. And that's reality, folks. You can read the rest of this article, but here's what it says to me that nobody else will tell you. This article is all doom and gloom on the economy. This article is actually why I think the false recovery is in gear. The American people are saving more money than they have at any other time in their life. Less people are losing jobs. Let's be honest. This isn't pro or anti-Obama or pro or anti-Bush or pro or anti-anybody. Less people are losing jobs than we're losing jobs over a two-year period. We've kind of bottomed out on the job loss thing. And the most people that are saving money right now, are they the ones without jobs? No, because they don't have an income. Or they have an unemployment income that's nowhere near enough to save money with. The people saving money right now are the people that have jobs. They've been scared a little bit, and they're saving money, and those savings accounts are growing. Now, the other thing you have to ask yourself, though, are are these people paying attention? Do they really get it, or are they just nervous? And how long, how long, before something gives them a little bit of hope, and all that money that's been sitting there, remember, this is not retirement savings. This is savings account stuff. This is money in the bank they can get their hands on. How long before that money starts burning a hole in that little hot hand, that little hot pocket? We get an election, there's a power change. It gives people confidence, even if it's not a full power change. What if I told you, get, I know there's a lot of politics coming in today, but what if I told you the Republicans really don't want the House this year? What if I told you I knew that for a fact? I do. I know that for a fact. They don't really want the House. You know what they want? They want to almost take it back. They want to be within five to ten seats of taking it back. They want enough to say that America is tired of Obama and he's got to go, but not enough to get any of the blame about what's going to happen in the next two years because they're betting on failure. They want the same thing in the Senate. They want enough to slow down a lot of this crap that the, the administration is trying to do, but they want enough to still make the other side culpable and blamed for everything that's going to happen. I actually have a party insider that told me there's a lot of thought like that in the Republican Party. I don't have a lot of insiders, but I have a few. And I know there's a thought process like that. And that's why in certain districts they're not doing all that they can to win. And they might win anyway. And I don't think they should worry about it because most Americans are stupid and they think whoever's the president, that party's in power. For the last two years of the Bush administration, everybody thought the Republicans were in power. They weren't. The Democrats were. They're the House and the Senate. Most Americans are stupid. I think sometimes the political wallywags overestimate the intelligence of the American people. Well, I would say not the intelligence, but the ability to focus. Anyway, here's what I see happening. All of that money being saved up, and all of the money that the Fed is pumping in, and all of the money that Obama's holding on to is the second half of the stimulus program, is going to get pumped into the economy in the next couple of years. And we kind of bottomed out with the people losing. So even if the unemployment rate only drops by a point, it's a huge victory, and confidence is even greater. So that's why I see the false recovery coming. I know people disagree with me, but look for Dow at 12,000. 
Look for unemployment at 8%. And I don't care if this rule says we have to have 5% growth for a year. We don't have to have 5% growth. We have to have 1% growth and 5% inflation. Um, there you go. I mean, that's the whole thing is playing out the way I've talked about for years now. I wish I was wrong. Because what I see, because this is not good news. This is a second chance for some of you guys that are stuck like the guy earlier, but this is not good news. Because the bubble created inside of that is going to be 100% debt and credit based. And it's going to be government based. And when that bubble pops, there is nothing left to pick the pieces up with. And if we have China playing its end game at the same time, we got real economic problems in this country. Let's go ahead and take another one. Well, here's another one that uh, points toward me being right on something negative, but yet brings us some hope at the same time. Uh, Jeff sends me this article. He says, I think this is an interesting article about urban gardening on vacant lots in Indianapolis. Last week I reported, uh, or stated, I think there's a better word to say in this, that I thought a lot of the suburbs across America were going to die. They were going to fall apart and go back into more of a rural uh, landscape as people move further out and further in. So people that are in this belt around these major cities uh, with resource limitations and, and all of these problems that we're having are either going to decide to solve their problems by moving closer to the city where they can walk everywhere, they don't really need a car, they can reduce their overall cost of living, uh, and they can be close to everything and everybody because they like that, or the other type of people, like me, are going to go further out. And that there's a the, the suburbs are being vacated, and that something has to be done with that land, and a lot of it is being turned over to agricultural use. And I gave Detroit as an example. Well, now here we are in Indiana, Indianapolis, Indiana. Let me read a little bit of this article to you. Um, Indianapolis. Indianapolis has set aside more than 100 city plots for something not often found in a major metropolitan area: farming. <clears throat> Indianapolis Urban Gardening Initiative is intended to serve as a valuable way to promote local, sustainable agriculture, economic development, and community building, Six News Rafael Sanchez reported. As part of the program, six lots are currently being used to grow fruits and vegetables. People selected to be urban gardeners must commit to maintaining the city-owned properties for five years. You have to think about things like how are you going to get water to the site? What's going, what are you going to do if you can't get water to the site? How are you going to engage the community, said Karen Haley, director of Indianapolis's Office of Sustainability. Gardening in the city also brings with it unique challenges, including soil that's often contaminated from previous uses. There's a lot of lead in urban soil. Isn't that great? Said Gabrielle Filippi, professor of Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. God, these schools, and the way they have to call themselves like six things, who heads up the school's new center for urban health. If grown with caution, you can grow wonderful food. Just a little bit of lead in it, I guess. Felipe has been testing soil on campus for new urban garden, tested more than 30 sites in Indianapolis, Greenwood, Camel, and Fishers for free this summer. He requires at least five samples from the proposed garden, three from the actual area, planting one sample from dirt near the road and another from a drip line closest to the garden. For areas with known lead contamination, including most older neighborhoods inside Interstate 465, Felipe recommends bringing in at least six inches of new topsoil before starting a garden. It's fine for the roots to go down into contaminated soil. They don't bring up lead very much, but the point of it is to cap the contamination with new mulch and clean soil. So nature can heal itself. Amazing. Matthew Jose, the former head of Purdue University Urban Farm Project, has put his expertise to work on Indianapolis near the east side, transforming vacant lots into produce-producing lots, collectively known as big city farms. Jose uses grazed beds to build up, built up with organic matter to nurture his plants and said he builds up his beds over the winter to prevent contamination. I tell people I have a son who's a toddler and I feel totally comfortable letting him eat what I've grown. He said, I think it's that safe. Local urban garden advocates Laura and Tyler Henderson tend to plots they've helped design across the city as well as their own expensive vegetable array at home. When you get people thinking about growing in their yard, especially in neighborhoods like this one, uh, where you get a lot of older homes <clears throat> that were surely painted with lead at some point in time, you need to test your soil for heavy metal contamination. Okay, so here's a couple things going on. One, it's another example of a place where houses have been abandoned to such a point that the best thing the city can do is bulldoze them and plant stuff. And a lot of these are older neighborhoods where the houses were not owned by a bank. They were owned by the person in them. They've been handed down in the family. And people just abandoned them due to urban decay. 
You know, the city actually, or the, the county could take them over for tax purposes. And they're bulldozing these damn things and letting people garden on them. Great. Um, but it does tell us something. People are evacuating a lot of the suburbs across America. It's playing out exactly the way I keep saying it's going to. People moving into the city and away from the city. And this belt in between being left. And it also starts to uncover some of the things we've been doing to ourselves for years. All that lead paint that we stopped using years and years ago has still has a lot of problems going on. And there's still that stuff in the soil. I would tell you there's also probably a lot of plants that they could bring in that would help take some of the contamination out of the soil and decontaminate the soil. Uh, but this is interesting. It does give me hope because what we have the potential for is to really reduce how much of these, uh, these suburban areas that go into decay have to be in decay. We're much better off with a lot of these places bulldozing some of these houses and putting in something productive. If we do this, basically think about what this would leave. This would leave major cities with agricultural belts wrapped around them that can provide food into the city. This is part of a solution if it's done right. My fear is we'll start hearing how we need genetically modified crops so that they can deal with the lead and other crap. But I'll give you a link to this article. Just, you know, when I say these things are going on, There's actually some evidence that I just might be crazy enough to be right, guys. I like to usually leave you with something kind of uh, inspirational on a Monday, but I'm not going to do it today because I have too much truth to give you today. So this is the last one of the day. Um, this email was sent to me by uh, a person named Steph. And Steph says, less than half of essential workers... No, that's the article's author. Who sent me this? Doesn't, it's just an email address. It doesn't really say who it was. Um, Stephanie Berger is the author of this article from Columbia. And uh, I'll put a link so you can go out and take a, a look at this article. But here's what the article says. Less than half of essential workers are willing to report to work during a serious pandemic. 12% of workers would choose to quit or retire rather than report to work. September 28, 2010, although first responders willingly put themselves in harm's way during disasters, new research indicates they may not be as willing if the disaster is a potentially lethal pandemic. In a recent study, researchers at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health found that 50% of first responders and other essential workers they surveyed might be absent from work during a serious pandemic, even if they were healthy. The study, reported online in October issue of the Journal of Occupational Environmental Medicine, involved over 1,100 workers recruited from six essential work groups, all located in New York's metropolitan area. The work groups included hospital employees, police and fire department personnel, emergency medical service workers, public health workers, and correctional facility officers. The researchers found that while 80% of workers would be able, i.e. available, to report to duty, only 65% were willing. Taken together, less than 50% of the key workers were both willing and able to report to duty. According to the lead author, Dr. Robin Gershon, professor of clinical sociomedical sciences and associate dean for research resources at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. God, these people love to get their names into this stuff, you know. A facility affiliate at Columbia University's National Center for Disaster Preparedness. Boy, you just want to credential this person. These data indicate that non-illness-related shortfalls among essential workers could be substantial. So we needed somebody with all those credentials to tell us that if 50% of the people that are supposed to help us out in an emergency aren't there, that it could be substantial. No shit. All right? So I'm not going to read this article any further. I'm going to put it out there so you can go look at it. I want to leave you with an impetus to be prepared for situations that we don't have to have the end of life as we know it, the New World Order, or any of that other crap. To, to worry about protecting ourselves and being prepared for real disaster. What this article says is we surveyed all the people that are going to have to help you if there's a big pandemic. And 50% of them ain't going to be there. And that's when they're being asked during a time... See, here's what's left out of this, right? This is the part that... This is what I bring it to the table for, so I can add into this. These are people that are healthy right now, that are out there doing their job right now, that feel good right now, and they ask these people, if there's a pandemic, are you going to report to work? And a lot of them say, yeah, we are. 65% are willing. Right? So 50% is not how many won't show up. 50% is how many won't be there, because some of them are going to be taken out by illness themselves. Right? So when nobody's dying, when the illness is not going, when the news is not running with it 24-7, 365, when they're not watching their own children get infected, When they're not worried about their own family, 65% say yes, and 35% say, hell no, I'm leaving. 
do you really think that only 35% will say hell no when they're actually faced with the real lethal situation? Or do you think when they're not trying to sound brave and when they're not trying to sound like duty, honor, etc., that maybe just a few more of these people will say, the hell with this, I'm taking care of my myself and my own, and I'm getting the hell out of here. This is what I keep saying about pandemics. If we have a big pandemic, you will be on your own. And you will. And this type of a report, this type of a study, does nothing but prove that to be the case. Because the people that are supposed to help you largely will be incapacitated themselves or not there. And this plays in perfectly with a survey that was sent to my wife's office. Um, two years ago I reported this. Or not two, not a year ago I think I reported this. During the middle of the swine flu panic last year when they were telling us, Oh God, wash your hands, sneeze in your sleeve. Oh. And every politician on the planet was making a big deal out of it so they could be heard in case something happened so they could say they did something. They sent out a survey to his office and you know what the questions were? Exactly these. It, it might have been part of this study for all I know, except this says it was from New York. Maybe the study was bigger. Maybe there was a second study. But the options for the doctor, the guy that she works for, were, what would you do during a pandemic? Like Option one was, like, increase my staff. Option two, see our current patients but not take new patients. Option three, do everything we can to assist in the emergency. Option four, close or retire. I mean, folks, you have to think about this. If we ever have a true disease pandemic where people that are infected have a high likelihood of death. Let's say something that sounds like it's not that bad, like 10%. 10% is enormous. 10% means 50% are seriously ill on the edge of death before recovery, needing hospitalization or more. With a high infection rate, do you really think that your family general practitioner, who's already considering retirement or changing careers because of the ungodly regulation that's being forced on them from the government is going to stay in business and risk their life instead of taking the medical supplies that they have available to them their resources which are considerable and holding up with their family and taking care of their family you don't think the same is true of paramedics surgeons all of these people that we think of if we're not among them If we're not first responders, we think of them as somehow special. And they are special, because they do put themselves in, in harm's way. But in reality, they're just people like you and me. They're just people like us. They have the same fears. They have the same concerns. They have the same love for their family. And what this report says is something I already knew. When the shit really hits the fan, they come first, and so do their families, especially their families. I would tell you that it's probably far more likely that the single paramedic you know, or the single doctor is going to show up for work. You add a wife and children into any man's heart, or you add a husband and children into any woman's heart, and priorities immediately shift. And all of the, I will risk myself for others, changes till I'll risk myself for my own first. So if there's no other reason to be prepared, it's because there is potential for a pandemic and you will be on your own. If it takes a little bit of fear to make you wake up, or to wake up somebody you know, this is a good one. This is a good one. Because in a pandemic, we will be quarantined. And you can scream bloody murder about liberty and freedom and get the ACLU involved and all else, and you know I'm a huge advocate of liberty, and you know I don't like to see any steps by government to limit liberty. But in a pandemic, there is no other choice. In fact, I don't care if they impose one or not, I ain't going out. If we have something with a high infection rate, high lethality rate, and people are dropping over left and right, I'm not talking about the sham that we just went through. I'm talking about the real deal. I'm talking, talking like something akin to or worse than the Spanish uh, influenza pandemic of 1918-1919. I'm talking about that, but with bird flu or some other thing. It doesn't have to be flu, folks. Some other infectious agent. We have that, and it's spreading rapidly through the, 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 the population. You don't have to quarantine me. I'm going to take the best course of survival I can, which is I'm going to limit my exposure. You may be faced with that choice someday. Here's the thing. Oh, I talked about a lot of dark stuff today, a lot of bad things, a lot of things going on. Government intrusion into your rights, genetically modified foods, 
the, the, the desolation of some of our suburbs, contamination that we're leaving behind in our soils, all of this stuff. But there's still hope. I'll still give you some hope on a Monday. The hope is you. The hope is your choice. When I showed my wife Alice Jones's article about the x-ray trucks and the, the, our people being radiated, our people having their constitutional uh, rights circumvented, I said, does it make you angry? She says, yeah, but what do I do? I said, you tell other people. You show it to other people. You just let other people know. That's it. And they choose what they do with it. But you plant the seed of knowledge in other people by letting them know what's really going on. This isn't hype. You read that article, and I know some people are more, uh, you know, not really anti, but less kind toward Alex than even I am. Okay? And you tend to doubt anything that comes from him as a source. But no one's denying this. There's no one in our government saying we're not doing this. It's not true. Right? They're like, yeah, we do this. You know, there's no one denying that there's lead in our soils in our older neighborhoods. No one. The government is helping people test for it before they grow something there. No one is denying that we're depleting our water resources. No one's denying that we are tampering with the genetic code of life on Earth. It's mainstream news every day now. It's up to you to let other people know what's going on, and it's up to you to prepare so you control your life when everything around you falls apart. And someday it might. And I don't know how bad it's going to be when it does. It may be something that's bad for some people and okay for others. Here's the thing. You don't get to decide which group you're in unless you take proactive action today. So be prepared. Be ready. Make sure that you live your life on your terms today, now. Take control now. If you don't have control now when things are relatively good, how are you going to control things if they get bad? The good news is you can. The tools that you need are out there. They're available. They're in my show. They're in forums. They're in chat rooms. They're all over the internet now. The information is available at overload speed. Pick small parts of your life. Make small improvements every day and stay informed. I know we talked about politics way more than normal on this show today. And I don't talk about them a lot. You still pay attention. Know what's going on out there. When you see liberty being taken, you know what? This would be a good day to pick up. You wonder what to call your congressional clown about? Call him about these radiation trucks. And tell him you better do something about this. I'm paying attention to this. Unless you think it's a good thing. I always say that, you know? If I'm going to tell you to call your congressman, you think you call him up and tell him this is great. You keep irradiating us. If you think it's wrong for the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution to be violated, then you call somebody and let somebody know. Whether it's a friend or a congressman, I don't care. But take control. Take action. If nothing else, so that even if it doesn't matter, one day when somebody asks you when you're an old man or an old woman, well, what did you do? You can say, I did something. I did something for everybody, and I did something for my own family. And that's why we're still here. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares